Welcome to Lift Their Voices, a podcast series presented by Roots of American Music in partnership with Evergreen Podcasts. This podcast series seeks to celebrate important historical figures from marginalized communities and highlight local artists. Roots of American Music, also known as Rome, is a nonprofit established in 1999 based in Cleveland Heights, Ohio. Rome integrates music and education in Northeast Ohio to create vibrant communities through art and vibrant art through community. More information on Rome and ways for you to support can be found at rootsofamericanmusic.org. Just one kiss, my breath stops still. You took my heart and my Please help me welcome to the stage, Mr. Sam Hooper. Thank you, Brian. How's everybody tonight? So I'm very honored to be here to do this for the Roots of American Music and for you. Now, the first part of this, we're going to be talking about a guy named Dr. Theodore Roosevelt Mason Howard. How many have you, well, I can't even see you guys. <laughs> How many have you had heard of him before tonight? Say yes if you have. Wow, nobody, just one. <laughs> okay, did anybody see uh, the movie Till? About Emmett Till? Yes. Yes, okay. Or the TV uh, adaptation, Women of the Movement, about Emmett Till. Do you see that? Okay, that's the one I saw. You may have noticed, those of you that saw Till, which I did not see yet, but I saw the other one, when Emmett Till was killed and his mother came down to Mississippi, she stayed with this guy at his big compound and was protected and escorted back and forth to the uh, courthouse. That was Dr. Theodore Roosevelt Mason Howard. Okay. And... Uh, he was a fascinating and challenging figure from the civil rights era. He's been called enigmatic and larger than life. He was an American civil rights leader, fraternal organization leader, entrepreneur, surgeon, and a true Renaissance man, and a farmer. <laughs> he was born March 4th, 1908 in Murray, Kentucky. Died May 1st, 1976 in Chicago, Illinois. Uh, he married into a wealthy family in 1935. His wife was Helen Neela Boyd, the sister of uh, Pepsi marketing executive Edward F. Boyd. He was um, a black man responsible for marketing Pepsi products to African Americans and expanding their market share over Coca-Cola at that time. So he was very innovative in, in that regard. So he's another guy you should probably check out, Edward F. Boyd. And part of the reason uh, that uh, Dr. Howard isn't that famous is because as a doctor, and particularly as a surgeon, his first love was medicine. So although he was very involved in the civil rights, uh, they didn't define his entire life. He always went back and went to the hospital and got busy. Dr. Howard was born in poverty 
in Murray, Kentucky. His father was a tobacco twister. His mother worked as a cook for Dr. Will Mason, a white physician who was very impressed with Howard's quick ability to learn, his sharp intellect, and dreams of a college education. Dr. Mason gave Howard a chance when he was 15 years old by employing him in the local hospital where he thrived under a variety of jobs. It was there that he decided that the medical field would be his future. Howard entered historically black Oakwood University in Huntsville, Alabama in 1924 with the financial support and formal recommendation of Dr. Mason. After graduating from Oakwood, he continued his undergraduate uh, career as the sole black student at Union College of Lincoln, Nebraska. Now, after earning a second undergraduate degree, uh, Howard entered medical school at the College of Medical Evangelists, now Loma Linda University in Loma Linda, California, where he graduated in uh, 1931. Now, that's where he met his wife when he was in California. As a sign of gratitude for the doctor who supported most of his university career, Howard added Mason as one of his middle names in the late 1920s. Now, after getting involved in civil rights issues, Howard moved to the all-black town of Mound Bayou, Mississippi, where he became the first chief surgeon at the Hospital of Knights and Daughters of Tabor. Built without a penny of governmental aid, it opened uh, in 1942 in Mount Bayou and guaranteed 31 days of hospital care to 50,000 members, most of them under the poverty line. And for annual dues, you paid $8.40, which would be about $110 in today's dollars. So they were practicing a, their own form of medicine without, I guess, socialized medicine without the government support at that time. And while there, he also founded a large farm, a bed and breakfast, a home construction firm, an insurance company, a small zoo, and the first swimming pool for blacks in Mississippi. In 1947, Howard left the Knights and Daughters and founded the Friendship Clinic. Uh, in the health field, Howard became well-known as a leading illegal abortion provider and advocate for legalizing prostitution. His insurance company was the Magnolia Mutual Life Insurance Company. When future civil rights leader Medgar Evers graduated from college, he sold insurance for Dr. Howard while also registering people to vote. So that's how he first, Medgar Evers first got involved in the civil rights movement by working for Dr. Howard. Um, and the book, T.R.M. Howard, Doctor, Entrepreneur, Civil Rights Pioneer. It tells a remarkable story of one of the early leaders of the civil rights movement. As I said, a Renaissance man. He was a respected surgeon, important black community leader, successful businessman. His story reveals the importance of the black middle class, their endurance and entrepreneurship in the midst of Jim Crow and their critical role in the early civil rights movement. As a farmer, he owned many acres of land, grew crops, and raised world-class cattle. In the uh, mid-1950s, Howard was perhaps the wealthiest black man in Mississippi. 
born in poverty, as I said, he had become chief surgeon at the hospital. And um, he owned a plantation of about a thousand acres. And oh, his restaurant had a beer garden. And he was chairman of the board of the National Negro Business League. In many ways, he represented a modern application of Booker T. Washington's view that political rights ultimately flow from economic power. In 1951, he founded the Regional Council of Negro Leadership, RCNL, and mentored some of the greatest civil rights activists of the 50s and 60s. I mentioned Medgar Evers, there was Aaron, Aaron Henry, and also Fannie Lou Hamer. The purpose of the RCNL was to encourage African Americans to vote, to hold public office, and become more civically and economically involved in the affairs of their community. The council carried out a successful boycott of racist service stations that refused to let black patrons use the restrooms. Blanketing the area with bumper stickers that read, don't buy gas where you can't use the restroom. On bumper stickers all over Mount Bayou area. As a result, the white gas stations were losing so much money, they did finally add bathrooms for blacks. So it was a successful uh, boycott. And this was before like the Montgomery boycott and everything. He felt we should be about the business of making changes to help ourselves. Howard also fought the credit squeeze by the White Citizens Council on those who dared to get involved in the civil rights movement. The Mississippi White Citizens Council, a racist organization with extensive political and economic ties on both the state and national levels, attempted to stop the Mississippi civil rights movement by initiating a credit freeze of their key activist leaders. Now, many of the black entrepreneurs depended on credit to run their businesses smoothly. So that would have put them in, in a lot of peril. So Dr. Howard and the Regional Council of Negro Leadership use the resources of the black-owned Tri-State Bank of Memphis, Tennessee to establish credit for the activist leaders and thereby circumvent the efforts of the Citizens Council. This action was an unprecedented success. Now, Mount Bayou, Mississippi, was a historic city within uh, the all-black town. as a safe haven for blacks that was founded by freed slaves in 1887. The RCNL held big civil rights rallies annually in Mount Bayou that would draw 13,000 or more people. Mahalia Jackson would sing, uh, future Supreme Court Justice Thurgood Marshall would speak and uh, wrote in the parade they had there. And as well as Representative William Dawson came down from Chicago to speak. These rallies combined a message of self-help, mutual aid, entrepreneurship, and civil rights. At that time, Thurgood Marshall was chief counsel for the NAACP. Ironically, he would later secretly work with J. Edgar Hoover to help to try to discredit Dr. Howard. 
1955, he drew national attention when he became involved in investigating the Emmett Till murder. In the ABC TV miniseries, Women of the Movement, viewers met Dr. Howard in 1955 when he greets two journalists he put up in the guest rooms at his home. Till's mother, Mamie Till Mobley, also flies to Mississippi to attend the trial and stay at Howard's home. Although it's not mentioned in the Women of Movement movie, Howard covered all expenses to ensure Till Mobley's safe travel to his mom bayou home in Mississippi. Women of the, of the Movement accurately portrays Dr. Howard. He ensured the safe transport of Till Mobley and many others to the Sumner Courthouse and back each day in a heavily armed caravan. They renamed, it's now called the Tallahatchie Courthouse, and that's about a 40 to 50 minute drive from Mount Bayou today. So they had to do that every day for the back and forth to the court. So Dr. Howard was very instrumental in uh, supporting them on that. His home indeed became a black command center for journalists and witnesses of the trial in 1955. With the help of Ruby Hurley and Megar Evers from the NAACP, he located, interviewed, and protected witnesses in Emmett Till's kidnapping and murder. Another incredibly accurate detail is that Howard slept with a gun at the foot of his bed he continually received death threats on his life for his involvement in, in helping the Till family and had an arsenal of firearms for protection. He also kept heavily armed bodyguards on watch at his home 24 hours a day because of the numerous death threats he received. After the all-white jury acquitted Emmett Till's killers, Howard traveled the country giving speeches the thousands of people about the horrific violence against black individuals in the South. This national speaking tour was financed by the NAACP, led then by Roy Wilkins. He also corresponded back and forth with letters to FBI head J. Edgar Hoover during this time, criticizing the FBI for failing to protect black victims. Hoover eventually wrote an open letter in the press denouncing Howard. Weeks after the acquittal in the Emmett Till case, Dr. Howard was invited by a relatively unknown 26-year-old pastor named Martin Luther King Jr. Martin Luther King invited him to give one of the speeches at the rally. It was an overflow crowd on November 27, 1955 at the Dexter Avenue Baptist Church in Montgomery, Alabama. Rosa Parks was in the crowd that day and heard Dr. Howard's speech. Four days later, on December 1st, 1955, Rosa Parks made history by refusing to give up her seat to a white man on a Montgomery bus. She was quoted later as saying she was thinking the whole time about Emmett Till. This led to the famous Montgomery bus boycott, 
which was the flashpoint that started the national recognition of Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. The great singer and actor Paul Robeson called Howard an energetic and resourceful leader. While the California Eagle, the main African-American newspaper out of Los Angeles, called Howard the most hated and the best loved man in Mississippi. Howard later spoke to 20,000 people at Madison Square Garden alongside Adam Clayton Powell Jr. and former First Lady Eleanor Roosevelt. Before the year ended, the death threats and economic pressure became too much. And Howard moved with his family to Chicago. When Malcolm X was assassinated in 1965, Howard headed a fund in Chicago to raise money for the education of Malcolm's children. Handed a check to his wife, his widow. In 1956, the Chicago Defender, known as America's Black Newspaper in the early 20th century, put him on the top spot on its national honor roll for arousing the nation to the criminal conspiracy of white supremacists in the state of Mississippi, is what it read. While in Chicago, he became president of the National Medical Association, the largest and oldest organization representing African-American physicians and their patients in the United States. Howard, a lifelong Republican, ran for Congress in 1958 against William Levi Dawson, a South Side Black Democrat backed by the powerful William Daly machine. He lost to the politically connected congressman. In 1971, Jesse Jackson formed Operation Push in Howard's home. And a year later, Howard founded the Friendship Medical Center, the largest privately owned black clinic in Chicago. Now, in hearing about starting Operation Push with Jesse Jackson in his home, uh, I also heard an anecdote that uh, Dr. Howard was an avid hunter and went on safari in Africa and uh, would bring back these animals and have them stuffed. So if you look online, you can see him in his Chicago office with like this stuffed leopard over here and a, a big stuffed lion over here. <laughs> so that was his thing. Just two months after the Supreme Court legalized abortion in the Roe versus Wade decision in 1973, Dr. Howard began performing legal abortions at his Friendship Medical Center in Chicago. According to a cover story in Jet Magazine, black women and white women jammed the clinic's waiting room and phone lines. Outside, Jesse Jackson, as, we, as I've mentioned, Howard had helped him in his career earlier, he was picketing and called abortion black genocide. Howard was part of the abortion rights movement as well as the civil rights movement. As usual, he did not shy away from the controversy around abortion and advocated that it could be safe, legal, and even convenient. He even proposed the lunch hour abortion in which a woman could have a 
complications-free procedure and returned to her desk in a jiffy. When black militants charged that abortion was black genocide, he countered with a broader social critique. Quote, you see, genocide takes many forms. A malnourished body caused by lack of food is genocide. A slum apartment infested with rats and poison paint peeling is genocide. Black schools, which plunge blacks into a dismal economic plight, is genocide. Unquote. It was widely known that he had performed at least hundreds of illegal but safe abortions in the years before Roe v. Wade. He died in 1976, as I mentioned, in Chicago. And Jesse Jackson presided at his funeral. Dr. T.R.M. Howard was a realist. He believed in hard work, the importance of education, and the practical application of the teachings of Jesus Christ. Instead of sitting around complaining about what the white man wasn't doing for us, he believed we should lead by example. He was too busy making changes. He spoke truth to power. He spoke to the evils of segregation and racism. He stood for integration. He was an immaculate dresser. That's why I'm wearing a tie tonight in his, in his honor. <laughs> you look online, he's always dressed to the nines. He believed he should hold his head up the same as any man and not bow down to another man. He served as an example to younger men to be proud of who you are and to create a life for yourself. A lesson of his life is to go get the career you want. Go get the better life you aspire to instead of sitting around complaining and blaming others for your circumstances. He felt like he should lead by example. Historians Dr. David T. Bieto and Linda Royster Bieto have written the definitive book on his life. I mentioned it earlier. It's called T.R.M. Howard, Doctor, Entrepreneur, Civil Rights Pioneer. Both feature... Um, both the feature film Till and ABC's Women of the Movement featured uh, Dr. Howard in the series, as I mentioned. And uh, that's what I have to say about Dr. T. R. M. Howard, Dr. Theodore Roosevelt Mason Howard. So now I wrote a little song about Dr. Howard, so let's hear that. Now, since he spent most of his time in the Mississippi Delta, I feel like we do some, some blues. Shining light Don't 
buying gas where you can't use the restroom, Dr. Howard said. His regional council of Negro leadership, a big boycott they led. It worked to create restrooms for blacks in the Delta where slaves had bled. champion of civil rights, surgeon and entrepreneur, not afraid of the good fight, proud of Mount Bayou, Mississippi, let's remember his shining light, when Emmett Till's body was found, Dr. Howard got involved helped with the investigation provided a safe place for Emmett's mom he fought with J. Edgar Hoover's FBI because he knew the murder could be solved oh Dr. T. R. M. Howard champion of civil rights Surgeon and entrepreneur Not afraid of the good fight The crown of mine by you Mississippi, let's remember his shining light When Dr. Howard spoke in Montgomery, Alabama Rosa Parks was there and got inspired Four days later, she refused to give her seat to a white man on the bus because she was tired. Then Martin Luther King led the bus boycott that set the civil rights movement on fire. Well, Dr. T.R.M. Howard, champion of civil rights, oh, surgeon and entrepreneur. of Mount Bayou, Mississippi, let's remember this shining light. I said, Dr. T.R.M. Howard, champion of civil rights, surgeon and entrepreneur, not afraid of the good fight. Pride of Mount Bayou, Let's remember his shining light. The pride of my bayou, Mississippi. Let's remember his shining light. Thanks so much.
So I'm George Blake. I'm on the board of Roots of American Music, and it is a great privilege to speak today with Sam Hooper. Uh, so Sam, I'm going to just start us off here by asking what some of these key words in our mission statement mean to you. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so the mission statement includes the idea that Rome integrates music and education in Northeast Ohio to create vibrant communities through art and vibrant art through community. Could you talk a little bit about that relationship between art and community and how it works in your uh, experience? Well, in my experience, um, yeah, they're very, art is very connecting. It's very unifying. It's very, uh, uh, it lifts your emotions. It touches your emotions. And when that happens in a group setting, you know, it's really powerful. Um, I particularly think about the, um, the performances I do at the Fatima Family Center you know, for their lunchtime uh, concerts. And, um, you know, people get up and dance, you know, people sing along. Uh, people are just very in- engaged and, and uplifted and inspired, you know. So I just, that just feels, feels really good. And, and also when, I'm, like, I'm working with little kids in the, in the schools, you know, it's a great connector to them as well, you know, it's just kind of a universal thing because it, it, it uh, yeah, because it touches so many emotions. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Could you say a little bit about Fatima? That's that's what neighborhood is that in? And it's it's an older population. What what are some of their favorite songs, or what gets people going? Um, it's over um, on 66 in Lexington. Mm-hmm. I think that's the technically the Huff area. Mm-hmm. <laughs> They like the blues quite a bit over there. They, they turn me on to different songs. Like there's one called um, Last Two Dollars, I think by Johnny Taylor, that I had, I had not really had heard before. I'm surprised, I'm really surprised. I had knew, knew others of his songs growing up, but that one had just kind of missed me. But uh, so we added that and stuff like, like Down Home Blues, they like uh, Tobacco Road, you know, things like that. Those are the type of, type of requests that I get. And uh, you know when you when you play what they want, they love it to death. <laughs> so yeah, and uh, and the ones you know the ones that are able to get up and move, get up and move. I mean, there's one woman, she, you know, I've been playing there for several years, and she is now in a wheelchair. She she and this other woman used to dance together all the time, but now she's in a wheelchair, but she'll still be grooving in her wheelchair. You know, so it's cool. And I, I think that people from all over. I know the people from like there are people from like Shaker Heights and and other suburbs that, that go to the the Fatima Center too. So yeah. great! So it sounds like you've done a number of Rome programs with Fatima and with Blues is the Background Bone and with Stop the Hate. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, okay. I think uh, one of the songs I wrote with I forget which school right now uh, got second place last year with Stop the Hate, and I think I think I'm in the finals this year right now. So yeah, that's that's a cool program just to have the the pressure cook on it. But the, the thing about it is that a lot of these schools don't have music programs. So this may be the only music that they get, you know, so just to be, get them to scratch that itch and, and bring that out of them. It's, it's powerful. Yeah. yeah. So what, what program were you working with, with the last stop the hate version? Um, I was, uh, I think it was at, uh, Max Hayes. Hmm. Yeah. It was, yeah. It was definitely Max Hayes. Um, but I've done, I've done, uh, what's the place on East Cleveland? Uh, Shaw, and then some elementary schools too, you know, middle middle schools. Okay. okay, great. Well, when I was 
sort of preparing for this and learning about Dr. T.R.M. Howard, mm-hmm. uh, I was really struck by the way that he was a mentor to people. Mm-hmm. Fannie Lou Hamer or Medgar Evers came up as people who kind of had that relationship. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Could you say a little bit about maybe experience you've, you've had in your life of mentors or, or how music can connect you as a mentor to younger people? Yeah, I mean, as a mentor, because I teach a lot, you know, I have a lot of private students and things, and it's, it's always good to see, especially when they connect with what you're trying to teach them and, and they take it to the next level. Like I have, I have a few students now, a couple in particular who are, I had when they were in high school, now they're in college and they're, they're still involved with music and, and, and growing and, and, and showing me stuff, <laughs> you know, so that, that's inspiring. Um, and then we were able to connect in ways we couldn't connect before because now they kind of understand who's who, you know, and what's quote-unquote good music or, you know, whatever, who's, who's got their act together, you know, so we can connect on that sort of thing. That's important. And uh, growing up, um, yeah, just a lot, a lot of teachers. When I lived out in L.A., there was a guy, he, it was just, he just inspired me by his presence, a guy named Wawa Watson, who had played, uh, I think, with Herbie Hancock and, and Marvin Gaye and, and a lot of people. And, uh, you know, I, I met him at a, at a clinic at Guitar Center he was giving. And then we just stayed in touch. And, um, and uh, we had this big gig, gig at this place called The Mint out there. And I looked around after the show, and he was there, you know. So it just made me feel so good that, you know, that someone of his stature just really came out and supported, you know, and uh, was, was paying attention. You know, so that was cool. Yeah. You know, it sounds like, you know, place was an important part of your set, talking about Mississippi mm-hmm. and, and mentioning Chicago. And, mm-hmm. you know, I, I, I know that you've played all over the place. <laughs> so no, just to, to read a quick list of mm-hmm. so China, Switzerland, Finland, Japan, and mm-hmm. you've taught in Boston, L.A., Shanghai, Beijing. Um, so mm-hmm. could you just talk a little bit about how place has been informed your music? Do people respond differently in different places? Uh, do you think of yourself as a having a Cleveland sound? Um, I, I, I mean, I probably have some sort of a Cleveland sound because it's just because it's in my blood, you know. Mm-hmm. And I feel like I kind of carry that everywhere. Um, I mean, I'm very rock and roll and, and blues based kind of no matter what I do. Yeah. But having experiences in those different places was has been really powerful. I mean, especially uh, Shanghai, because we got to stay there for a while. You know, I mean, I, mean, I went there once. I toured with a Chinese singer, and we went to about uh, 13, 14 different cities. So we didn't sp- stay uh, in any one very long. But when my band started to go into Shanghai, we were playing six nights a week, three to five months at a time. So we really got the chance to connect with the culture and enjoy the fact that it's a really metropolitan city and it's a very international city and because of this because of, of playing in China in Shanghai that I go to go to play in Finland because uh, you know Shanghai kind of like New York everybody's there doing business from all over the world and in our audience there'd be like a, a table from Finland a table from Brazil a table from the Netherlands or wherever you know and uh, to be able to connect with those people and I I haven't gotten to Iceland yet, but I, I sent some friends of mine when they were going to Iceland to see a friend of mine in Iceland who I had met in Shanghai. So just stuff like that that, you know, you kind of have to get out of Cleveland to to experience, you know, you know, it's cool. Cool, yeah. And I, I'll take this moment to mention the best self-produced album from the Cleveland Blues Society. 
uh, Sam Hooper and Mike Knoll. Who do Thank blues. you. Thank you very much. Yeah. Uh, and so, you know, could you, this, this was uh, recorded at Bad Racket. I think. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And could you say a little bit about some of those, the local stories of, of the Cleveland world? I mean, I, I kind of love learning about this little un, unknown. I didn't know the Bad Racket existed, for example. Oh, really? Yeah. Oh. Um, I forget who recommended that to us at the time because we were looking for a place. Well, let, let me kind of go back because Mike Null, who I did that CD with, I met him in Shanghai because yeah. uh, the club had uh, House of Blues and Jazz in Shanghai had flown me back to play for the week. They had a month celebrating their 15th anniversary. Mm-hmm. And each week they had a featured performer who had been popular at the club. So they, they couldn't fly my whole band back, but they flew me back to play with his band. His band was like the house band. Mm-hmm. And then it turned out that his parents were living in Akron. So when he came to visit them, you know, we talked about doing the CD. That's kind of really how that happened, you know. So that was a, a cool connection. And um, the drummer on that record I had known since uh, high school, Reggie Holmes. Mm. And that in high school he sounded like Billy Cobham. I mean, you know, he'd come to jams with, the, uh, you know, a drum set about as, as big as, as wide as this uh, curtain. And uh, unfortunately, he, he passed away not long after that that record. But, uh, and he had played with, I think, like Pharaoh Sanders and, and different people, you know. Yeah, when I was at Wittenberg in Springfield, Ohio, that was the first college I went to. My dad uh, worked with Greg Bandy's, um, you know, Greg Bandy? Yeah, worked with his dad at the post office. So um, they had a good music program, so that's why I started there. And his, I would go with his sister to see Greg play in Dayton, you know, so just... Great connections around Cleveland, yeah. And and I have to mention my favorite place, uh, the library. So it sounds like Red House uh, by Jimi Hendrix came through con- finding an album at the library. Am I getting that story right? Or just discovering history of this music through the library? Yeah, I discovered the history of the music through the library. Yeah, I would listen to like you know, Lead Belly and uh, I guess maybe Sun House and uh, Lightning Hopkins mm-hmm. records and stuff I would find through the library. But I, I think I had already heard Jimi Hendrix mm-hmm. And I think I bought uh, a Jimi Hendrix smash hits and maybe Le- the first Led Zeppelin album, I think, at the same time. And it was just something about, I had the album for a little while because I li- listened to Purple Haze and Foxy Lady and all that stuff. But when I heard Red House, it just like stopped me in my tracks. I was like, what is that? <laughs> you know. So I just really you know, got deeper into that, that sort of music, you know. Yeah, and... Uh, and Hendrix, you know, I mean, even, it's amazing how people are still getting turned on to Hendrix, you know, all these years later. Yeah, and it, one one person said you're influenced. You sound like you're influenced by Jimi Hendrix and Vernon Reed. Oh yeah, guys, yeah, one of the, the guys in, in Boston, one yeah. of the um, writers in Boston, Steve Morse. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, Living Color was really happening at that time. So yeah, yeah, I would throw 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 my. <laughs> Crazy fast licks in there. Not that they made a whole lot of sense, but <laughs> they were loud. Yeah, yeah. I was playing with a, a blues band with a singer named Angela McClinton at that time. But yeah, definitely, definitely influence. Could you tell us a little bit about what maybe you have over at the table and and what what we can look forward to uh, with you in future shows? Oh, okay. Um, over the table, uh, the one CD I had the most made of, uh, printed of, was the one called Live in Shanghai. And that was recorded uh, at the House of Blues and Jazz in Shanghai after playing five months, six nights a week. And a friend of ours who uh, from the U.S. recorded it live and then had it remastered 
uh, here in the States uh, with a buddy of mine in, in Boston, I believe. Jim, John Weston, I believe, did that one. Um, oh, no, I think it was somebody else. Anyway, I think it was a friend of the bass player. But anyway, I had it, re- had it remastered here, and um, it it's captures, you know, kind of the energy of that room. You know, at first I didn't want to release it because there's a lot of crowd noise and stuff. But uh, we kind of, you know, when we remastered it, we kind of cut some of that down because I felt the performances were so strong. I mean, we really became a band uh, when we went started playing in Shanghai. Uh, I played with the drummer some before, but I didn't had not met the bass player uh, Jordan Scanella until we started going to Shanghai. And uh, so Akira Nakamura is on drums from Okinawa, Japan, and Jordan Scannell is a bass player um, from Cincinnati, Ohio. We were all at Berkeley in Boston. You know, that was our connection. And, and Jordan just got finished playing in the pit for Hamilton for like four years. Um, so that's who's, who's on that CD. And it's a mix of originals and covers. And um, the T-shirt I mentioned is uh, I decided that the message of the song kind of needed a T-shirt. So uh, with uh, my friend um, Michelle Phelan in, in Boston who helped design that, um, we kind of kind of handpicked the flags that were going the heart. They're all kind of places I have played or know people there, you know, because we couldn't put all the flags of the world on there. So I felt there should have a little bit more meaning. So that's how uh, that's on there. And there's also a, a QR code that goes to my website on there. And then we have the email list sign up. So please sign up so we can see you again and again. And the very next performance will be at the um, Shaker Public Library this uh, Saturday from two to four. I'm a part of a a storytelling event. Um, There'll be storytellers, there'll be dancers, there'll be musicians and poets. My friend Monica Boone is uh, directing it. And I'll be doing a couple songs, uh, part of that from two to four for free at the Shaker Public Library this Saturday. You've been listening to Lift Their Voices, a podcast series presented by Roots of American Music in partnership with Evergreen Podcasts. To learn more about Roots of American Music and support our work, please visit rootsofamericanmusic.org. Thanks to our featured artist, Sam Hooper. To learn more about Sam and listen to his music, visit samhooper.com. Special thanks to Ohio Arts Council and Cuyahoga County Arts and Culture for their continued support. Today's episode was produced by Morgan McCaskey. It was recorded by Morgan McCaskey and Brian Kennard. Post-production engineering by Dave Douglas. Contains original music by Sam Hooper. I'm your host, George Blake. Thank you for listening. What was it like to be there for historical sports moments and unforgettable performances? To be behind the scenes? 
On Press Box Access, you'll hear from me, Todd Jones, and other sports writers about their experiences with the greatest athletes, coaches, and sports events of the past half century. We'll share some stories behind the stories, some big, some small, and some we've only told each other. Let us buy you around on Press Box Access.